Now, in order to leave a maximal time for our brother who is following, I'm going to just assume you know much of the background, and we're just going to break in here in Genesis chapter 37 and verse number 12. This is Joseph, his father. And his brethren went to feed, verse number 12, his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem. Come, I will send thee unto them. And he said, Here am I. And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren, well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, behold, he was wandering in the field. The man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? He said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence. I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. And of course, you know the events that ensue. We're just going to turn now to chapter number 40. Joseph is imprisoned, and we'll break in at verse number 4. The captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, that is the butler and the baker, and he served them, and they continued a season in ward. And they dreamed a dream, both of them, each man his dream in one night, each man according to his interpretation of his dream, the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, which were bound in the prison. And Joseph came into them in the morning and asked unto them, and looked upon them, rather, and behold, they were sad. And he asked Pharaoh's officers that were with him in the ward of the Lord's house, saying, Wherefore look ye so sadly today? And they said unto him, We have dreamed a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. And Joseph said unto them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me them, I pray thee. And then, of course, there is the relating of the dreams to Joseph. Chapter number 41. Joseph is called out of prison by Pharaoh because of Pharaoh's dreams. And Joseph is, verse number 14 of chapter 41. And Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. And he shaved himself and changed his raiment and came in unto Pharaoh. Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have dreamed a dream, and there is none that can interpret it. And I have heard say of thee that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, it is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Now we trust that God will add his blessing to the reading of his word, along with what we have been privileged already to hear this afternoon. I think uh, most of us, especially if you do any significant reading of history, would be quick to acknowledge that some of the greatest events of history have hinged upon very, very small, seemingly insignificant events and beginnings. For example, legend says that the Battle of Gettysburg, that most of us here are familiar with, began as a result of Henry, General Henry Heath sending General Pettigrew into the city of Gettysburg to look for shoes for the Confederate soldiers. And he sent a battalion of soldiers in with Pettigrew looking for shoes to clothe the Confederate soldiers. Not looking for a battle. In fact, they had orders not to engage the enemy. But they arrived in Gettysburg and Buford and his cavalry unit arrived in Gettysburg and one thing led to another. And three days later, 50,000 men, more than the entire casualty list of the Vietnam War, in three days' time, 50,000 men lay dead 
upon the fields of Gettysburg, just looking for shoes, going from secular history to Christian history. Was it in 1850 that Charles walked into a small Methodist church on a snowy morning, sitting in the balcony, and a layman preacher standing before him said, young man, you look miserable. And Charles Spurgeon, recognizing his need of a savior, was saved that day. Just a small little hinge with tremendous consequences that sprang from it. Coming to biblical history, think of the tear. Could anything be weaker? Could anything be so insignificant as the tear on the cheek of a baby? And yet we read that when Pharaoh's daughter saw the babe weep, she had compassion. And the tears of a baby overthrew the mighty monarch of Egypt and led to an entire exodus of a nation for God. What about, you've already heard, Rebecca, just going out to take care of a few animals, drawing water from the well, just doing ordinary things. And the man says, whoever says to me when I ask for water that they will draw for the camels also, I'll know that's the woman God has in mind for my master's son. And she just does a very little thing. Small hinges with big happenings. If you want to think of it this way, small hinges that open big doors. But I want to talk to you about small hinges that Joseph's entire future swung upon. Now, you may say, well, I thought you would certainly go to chapter 39 and the day he stood before Potiphar's wife and said no, as we've already heard, when he, when he saw an opportunity and it was deferred, it was denied. That was a major hinge. But I want to talk about small hinges. Things that we might just pass over as being very insignificant in his life and yet had tremendous consequences for, for Joseph. So I want to talk about, first of all, in chapter 37, he avoided obedience that was minimal. He avoided obedience that was minimal. I'm not sure if it's a proper term, but uh, I think sometimes we practice minimalist Christianity. How little can I do? How, how little can I obey and still somehow get through life as a respectable Christian, whatever that means. But he avoided minimal obedience. And we'll look at that in a moment and explain it. He avoided obsession with his own self, with his own problems. Comes in one morning, if I understand Psalm 107 correct, or Psalm 105 correct, is it? His neck had a chain around it. Arms and feet in fetters. Imprisoned wrongly. And he looks on men who look sad and wants to know their troubles. Not occupied with his own. He avoided obsession with self. But then, not only that, he avoided an opportunity he could have compromised. We've been reading about, hearing about opportunities. Dreams had brought him into prison. Dreams had in some way, brought him into the very depths of his 
situation. It had brought him low. It had brought him into chains. It had brought him into grief. It had wrenched from his heart the one object of his love, his father's heart. Be very, very easy to compromise and say, look, boys, dreams. Uh, You don't mind if I uh, just stay away from dreams for a while. They've caused me nothing but grief. They've caused me nothing but problems. I thought dreams would have been accomplished this way, and yet, here I am. He avoided a compromising opportunity. Standing before Pharaoh, he avoided an omission that would have been very convenient. Pharaoh says, I have heard of you, that uh, you're the one that can interpret dreams. Here he is standing before the mighty monarch of the day. No, not me. God. So let me just quickly come to these if I can and speak to you about each of these. And as I said, I want to leave maximal time for my brother and his ministry to follow. He avoided obedience that was just minimal. There's a distinction between his father's command and his father's desire. His father's command was to go to Shechem. His father's desire was See how your brethren are doing. When he arrived in Shechem, his brethren weren't there. And he could well have said, I've carried out my father's command. I've come to Shechem. They're not here. It's their problem, not mine. I have been obedient. I have followed the letter of the law. And I need do nothing more. But there was something beyond his father's command. There was his father's desire. You remember that occasion when David was in the hold and the breathing of his heart. There were men close enough to David. Three men close enough to David to hear what, not his command was, but the longing of his heart was. Oh, that one would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem. They knew his desires. And they went beyond simply what was commanded of them as as soldiers. There is a danger. There is the dumbing down of of Christian living, isn't there? There's the uh, attempt to get away with as much as... How close can I come to the world? How close can I come in this area of my life? How far can I go in that area of my life and still somehow be, uh, be within a sphere of safety that no one can point a finger at me, no one can criticize? Minimal Christian living. Had Joseph just gone to Shechem and not have pursued his brethren. Now you may say he wouldn't have been sold as a slave. No, he wouldn't have been, at least at that point in time. But you'll understand what I'm saying that would have not been in keeping with God's purposes for this young man. All the preparation, all all the purposes of God for his life hinged upon this, that he wanted to carry out the longings of his father's heart. There's a man in our Bible who practiced brinkmanship. He honed it to a fine skill. Samson, you're a Nazarite. No wine, no strong drink. Where's the first place you see him? He's walking through a vineyard. Well, I'm, I'm being obedient. I'm not touching the grapes. I'm not going to eat them. I'm, I'm not involved with wine, but uh, I'm as close as I can to it. And that brinkmanship followed him all through his life. 
You recall when he's upon the lap of Delilah, he begins with the uh, with binding, and then he comes to well, if you do something with my hair, he's getting as close as he can, playing brinkmanship, playing with the tremendous risk of getting as close to something that was dangerous, but still staying within a sphere of what he thought was obedience. The distinction then between just obeying the commands and that's it, versus carrying out the Father's desire. The Lord Jesus Christ. Some think that the Lord Jesus Christ was somehow contradicting the law or overturning the law when in those wonderful chapters we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. He says, ye have heard it hath been said, but I say unto you. He was not canceling the law, not overthrowing the law, not in some way adding to it. What he was revealing was what was really the intention of God in giving the law. Not just thou shalt not commit adultery, but that God was legislating, God was desiring moral purity amongst his people. And all of those commands that men thought as long as we stick to the letter of the law, we are doing just absolutely fine. The Lord Jesus made it clear that God's intention, God's desire, went beyond the mere literal negative aspects of it to reveal something of the greatness of God's heart. So we are reminded here then of the danger of living on the border, the danger of minimal Christian obedience, the danger of getting as close to things as we can. Think of, think of your life and mine. I do not want to suggest legalistic rules and regulations. But there is a danger to always saying, well, there's no verse against it. There's no scripture against it. And there's, no, there's nothing you can show me in the Bible that says, I can't do that. There are principles that reveal to us something of the heart of God and the desire of God for his people. And if you need rules and regulations to control your life, that's a very, very immature level of Christian living. To be sensitive to the longings of the heart of God for you is really where God intends our Christian lives to be lived. Not just the absolute commands. What are his desires? You say, well, there's no verse in the Bible that says, I've got to be at every single meeting of the assembly, is there? I mean, uh, as long as I get to the breaking of bread, that keeps me in good standing, and I'm still considered in fellowship. And if I don't make it to midweek meetings, and I don't make it to gospel meeting, I mean, there's no verse that says, I have to be there, is there? What do you think he desires? What do you think would be the longing of a heart of God for his people? There are others in the audience, so it's not just myself. Others in this audience who have been to places where believers walk for miles to get to a breaking of bread. They walk through dangerous areas to make it to meetings. They don't have convenient cars. They don't have air-conditioned vehicles to uh, traverse the distance. But they're there. When Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he says, when the whole church is gathered together. I learned from that that the Spirit of God never intended, never intended willful absence from meetings of the assembly. 
when it's possible to be there. Now, I know there are exceptions, professional demands on individuals at times, illness, children, all the rest. We're talking about willful absence when I could be there. The danger then of minimal obedience. But I want to speak as well of the danger of obsession with myself. We mentioned already, here is Joseph. He has not only been sold by his brethren, rejected. Not only has he been wrongfully accused and imprisoned. Here he is in the dungeon. And into his care are placed other men. You and I, likely without exception, would have been all thinking about self. And yet he comes in one morning and he sees two men who look sad. His entire future hinges. His entire future hinges on having a care for two other men instead of himself. Our brother's been speaking of opportunities. That individual who's going through a crisis at school, that neighbor who is involved in some tremendous tragedy, all the opportunities around, and sometimes we are occupied with ourselves. The most, maybe it's always wrong to say the most, as though this is, I'm speaking with authority, but I think one of the most destructive mindsets for any believer to entertain is that of self-pity. Just feeling sorry for myself and my circumstances. Why me? I mean, the the classic example of the destructiveness of self-pity is Saul in the Old Testament. Manipulating men, trying to use people to carry out his desires, making them feel sorry for poor Saul. The tremendous destructive mindset of self-pity that makes me think that because life has been so cruel, because God has not supplied what I need, I have an absolute right to get it myself any way I can. And therefore, I will just seize the opportunity that I should not be seizing. Joseph was preserved from any thought of self-pity. Think of a Hannah in the Old Testament. Or think of an Anna in the New Testament, the, the two corollaries. Think of them and uh, their circumstances. There's, there's Hannah with a rival and with all of the abuse she is enduring from Penina. And there's her husband who seems to lack a bit of sensitivity when it comes to understanding his wife. Am I not better to you than ten sons? Unfortunately, he's not the last man who thought he was the be-all, end-all of his wife's life. But uh, uh, there she is, and instead of bitterness, instead of self-pity, instead of just wallowing in the feeling of her own loss, she's burdened and exercised about the need of the people of God and the need of uh, of the nation. And there's an Anna as well who, despite widowhood and the status of widows in that society, she is giving herself to prayer and fasting, looking, waiting upon God for the blessing of the nation. 
Avoid, avoid any thought of self-pity, obsession with self and your circumstances and the fact that you think life has not worked out as you ought to. He avoided self-centered obsession. But he avoided as well an opportunity that he could have compromised. In prison, he sees these two men with their sad faces, their sad countenances. Why, are, why do you look so sad today? Well, we both dreamed a dream. And Joseph says, tell them to me, do not, be interpreted, do not dreams belong unto God. I'm not sure how you view the, the dreams that Joseph had as a boy of 17, or these dreams as well here to these men, or the dreams that Pharaoh would have. But I would gather that in the dispensation, the age in which we are looking, this was God communicating. This was God's word to men. God's word to Joseph and God's word to these, to the butler and the baker, and finally God's word to Pharaoh. What I learn is this, that Joseph valued the word of God despite what it had cost him in his own life. He had moved on the basis of God's word. When he told his brothers those dreams, he was not... Uh, if you have any of those children's storybooks that, uh, you know, that, that talk about the different characters in the Bible and talk about Joseph as a, a spoiled little boy who uh, foolishly and out of pride told his brothers about his dreams, uh, throw them out. Throw them out. Because Joseph was being faithful with the word of God. Joseph was relating the message God gave him to others. And in faithfulness, and because of faithfulness to God's word, it brought him into slavery. It brought him into a dungeon. And there he is. And now the word of God comes once again. I'm not sure because it doesn't tell us, but I wonder if Joseph sometimes thought... Things haven't worked out the way the dream suggested. Things just haven't developed as I thought they would. If Joseph didn't think that, there were two on the road to Emmaus who did think it. We had hoped. In fact, the same thing. Why do you, what, what is this that you, as you walk together and are sad, the Lord Jesus speaks to the two on the road to Emmaus in, in light of their sadness. And they said, we had hoped it would have been he which had have been delivered Israel, and so on. They had hopes, and their hopes had been dashed. Their dreams had been shattered. One-sided theology was the problem there. They had just read all the, the scriptures that were so nice and so wonderful about Israel's great, wonderful future, and had omitted all the scriptures that told of a rejected, despised Savior. And so the Lord Jesus Christ began and told them in all the scriptures, the things concerning him, he balanced the word of God. But they were people walking with shattered dreams. And I think that in a company like this, it's very likely that there are people here with shattered dreams. Things that seemed as though God were moving in this direction in your life. Things that seemed as though God were opening doors of opportunity and, and you began to walk through and suddenly things just fell apart. There's probably scarcely a family here that doesn't have at least in one member or another of that family 
a shattered dream. Something you expected for your family. Something that you had prayed for and longed for in your family. Didn't happen. God shatters dreams to give us better realities. If Joseph had a shattered dream here, and we're not told he did, but if he did, God had a better reality for him in the end. But what I want to especially press upon you is that Joseph, Joseph valued the word of God. Despite all it had cost him, despite all the suffering it had brought him into, despite the delay in the purposes that he had, that God had for his life, he valued the word of God and was willing once again to interpret it to these two men. So let me just ask. You may think this is a big exegetical leap, but uh, what does the word of God mean to you? I mean, our brethren have faithfully and carefully and earnestly and sincerely opened to you the word of God this weekend. The truth of God has been brought before us. In the days of Jeremiah, they came and sat before him and he was like a lovely song. Or was it Ezekiel, rather? It was a lovely song to listen to. And so we've, become, we've all come together for a bit of spiritual entertainment. To just see how well men speak. To see how nicely we can sing. To just have a nice time with each other. What does the word of God mean? What are you going to take away from this conference as far as the word of God? As far as truth that will become a commitment, that will become a conviction, that will become a stay in your life. The word of God meant everything to Joseph. Just remember this. When you think of Joseph's sterling life and the consistency of it and the the care with which he moved through life and the wisdom that he displayed, that Joseph got one message from God as a 17-year-old teenager. And I cannot find another place that God spoke to Joseph directly. When you're looking at Abraham, God spoke to him at least seven times. Isaac, three. Jacob, eight. Joseph, just once. 17 years of age. Would you be able to live the rest of your life on what God revealed to you from this book? That's 17 years of age. Now, you don't have to because God will speak every day. But you know what I'm saying? That that's how much the word of God meant to Joseph. It absolutely controlled his life. Till the end of time. The word of God meant everything. He did not compromise an opportunity to obey or to reveal the word of God to others. I wanted to be down to 3.30. Let me just mention, he avoided a convenient omission. It's one thing, isn't it, in the prison with the butler and the baker, two two other prisoners. It's one thing there to say, do not dreams belong to God. Now he has an opportunity for personal advancement, personal glory, personal honor. He's standing before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I have heard of thee that thou canst interpret dreams. Okay, Joseph, here's your chance. Here's your chance for big time. Here's your chance to really make an impression on people. No. Dreams belong to God, not to me. Now, you'll have to understand that uh, Pharaoh was, to his people, a god. 
So this is not Joseph standing before, you know, a nice God-fearing Western dictator or Western leader and uh, ascribing honor to God kind of as a platitude. This is Joseph standing before a man with the power of life and death, who viewed himself as a God over the Egyptians. And Joseph says, no, dreams belong to God. In every circumstance, in all of life's events, I will give honor to God, not to myself. This is an opportunity for me to yield honor to God, not to self. And so the man who avoided obsession with himself, the man who, as we have read already, avoided minimal obedience, the man who avoided an opportunity to compromise, he avoids an omission that would have been very convenient. He will give honor and glory to God in every circumstance of life. Do I have to tell you the rest of the story? How it ends? You know it so well. The man who would not settle to be obedient just minimally. The man who did not compromise his opportunity. The man who would not take advantage of his audience before Pharaoh. God brought him to his eventual purpose in life. Second only to Pharaoh on the throne. Joseph, savior of the world, revealer of secrets, the one who left all with God, and the one who was used by God for blessing to others.